Well, let's open our Bibles now to Psalm 13. It is our normal practice to preach through books of the Bible. We just finished 100 sermons through uh, Romans. And uh, we will be, when I get back from vacation, we will be going through the book of Esther. And if all you know of the book of Esther comes from Christian movies, uh, it will be an eye-opener for you. Uh, The king is not Prince Charming, and Esther is not the sweet, pure, innocent, godly woman at least at the beginning of the story that she has been portrayed to be so often. And so it's one of my favorite books in all the Bible. Uh, Look forward to to working our way through that. But for for this little two-week interim between finishing Romans and my leaving for vacation at the end of this coming week, uh, we are looking at the issues of anxiety and depression. Last week we heard from our Lord Jesus saying, Do not be anxious. This, this week we will turn our attention to the topic of depression, and it surprises none of you that our title comes from the Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sure, because um, I love Pilgrim's Progress, and I say inflammatory things about Pilgrim's Progress, like you won't go to heaven if you haven't read it and such things. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 13, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord as we hear the very words of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. This good, pure, perfect gift. By your word, You have revealed yourself to us, made yourself known by your spirits working through your word. You have caused our blind eyes to see, our deaf ears to hear, even our dead hearts to live. And so we pray, God, that you would accomplish by your spirit through your word this morning all of your good purposes in us and through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Pilgrim's Progress, of course, is John Bunyan's brilliant and amazing biblical allegory. He wrote it and published it, at least, in 1678. Uh, Wrote it from prison. He was in prison for preaching the gospel when he wrote this book. Our main character in the book is a man named Pilgrim, whose name quickly becomes Christian. After he believes the gospel, this main character leaves his city, the city of destruction, which is doomed, and he sets out for the celestial city of God. And and soon on his trip, he is joined by two men from the nearby area, one named Obstinate, the other named Pliable, Obstinate, 
true to his name, abandons them fairly quickly in the journey. And so it's Christian and Pliable who are sort of soldiering on, and the two men encounter a pit of mud, like quicksand. Here's what Bunyan writes. As they drew near to a very miry slough. It is slough, Peggy, by the way. Sometimes you only know a word because you've read the book and you've never heard it said. And then you say it wrong, and Peggy, because she loves you and cares about you, says that's not how that word's said. <laughs> a slough that was in the midst of the plain. They, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the slough was Despond or despair. Kids, if you've watched the the animated movie, it's the swamp of despondency. Here, therefore, they wallow for a time, being grievously covered with dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, this, this burden that he carried that represented his sin, Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Well, Pliable is able to get himself out of this quicksand-like swamp, but he is angry. He's so angry, in fact, that he doesn't help Christian get out at all. He just leaves and goes home, and he abandons Christian, leaving him for dead, leaving him sinking and desperate in the swamp. And as Christian struggles all alone, sinking in that swamp, fearing his own death, someone comes along to his aid, a man named Help, a man in the story who represents the Holy Spirit. And Help pulls him Free And Christian is, is in a panic as he has been pulled now onto solid ground about what has just happened to him. And he launches into a rant of sorts about the slew of despond, this, this, this swamp of despair. Why does this exist? Why hasn't this been fixed? Why hasn't it been taken care of? Why hasn't it been filled in so that no one falls into it? And help tells him it can't be filled. It can't be repaired. It's a low spot. And all the filth, all the, all the sin, all the despair, all the worry, all the sorrow, it just sort of naturally collects there. It can't be fixed. And it can't be avoided, help tells him. It can only be traveled through. That is a powerful, deep image. The, the slew of despond cannot be eliminated completely. Everyone who is traveling to the celestial city must travel through it. And help tells Christian there were stepping stones there, though. Out in the middle, out in the, in the middle of this swamp of despair, there were stepping stones, but he says these steps are hard to see. The truth is despair, discouragement, Depression will never be eliminated completely as potentials for the believer. It must be traveled through. There are stepping stones, but they are often hard to see, especially when it feels like you're drowning. The slew of despond is an ever-present danger. In reality, discouragement is one of the chief tools that is used by the enemy against us. It, it's because it can lead to all sorts of unbiblical conclusions, spiritually discouraging misconceptions that rob us of joy, and if we're not careful, actually harden our hearts, these lies that we believe. But God has not left us alone in this. He has not abandoned us. He has not left us to die. Brother and sister, if you are struggling with this this morning and feel like you're drowning, he will not let you drown. Didn't we just sing together that powerful truth? 
He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises will last. In Psalm 13, we see David mired down in the slew of despond. He is running from his life from Saul. He is misunderstood by his nation, by his family. He feels completely abandoned. He is hiding out just in order to stay alive. And he expresses early in this psalm the same feelings, the same lying conclusions that many of us are tempted to believe when we find ourselves sinking in the swamp of depression. Instead of seeing things rightly as, as he flounders and sinks, instead of seeing the stepping stones that God has provided, we get mired down. We begin to sink we just look at what it is that David says. What are, what are the, the lying conclusions he's come to about God as we begin this? First is this. Lying conclusion number one is I've been forgotten by God. He says in verse one, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Some of us know what that feels like. You feel like you've been forgotten by God. There are so many important things going on in the world. Surely God has forgotten about little me. Insignificant, meaningless me. Now, of course, none of us actually thinks we're insignificant. We are the bright, shining sun in the center of our own universe. That's why we see this hard-hearted accusation of God here. Are you going to forget me forever? Because obviously you should not. Obviously, I... I am not one who should, should be forget, forgotten, but isn't that how it feels when you're underwater, when you're sinking in the swamp of despair, when you're fighting for your life, when you're afraid, when you're confused, when you're hurting, it feels like you've been abandoned and it feels like that abandonment is going to be forever. It feels like it's been going on for a lifetime. And there's no end in sight. I remember a, tr a trip we took years and years ago. Hannah was a four-year-old. She was nice back then. We were at a... I don't know why, Hannah. I don't know why I have to take shots at you. We were at a, at a water park with a very large wave pool. And she was standing right next to me in the wave pool. And the wave pool sort of... You walked into it and then it opened up and the walls went around like that. And in an instant, the way, when, the, when the wave machine started, this giant thing that creates these big waves in this pool, the undertow sucked her underwater and sucked her around the corner. And she is away from me by quite a distance, underwater, and I can't even see her because she's been sucked around the corner of the wall. The desperation of that moment, trying to get to her when I'm in waist-high water, Trying to get around to that corner as fast as I can. It felt like forever to get there. It was really just a handful of seconds. And I, like a hero, rescued her. And she still owes me. But when, we're, when we feel that desperation, when we feel that fear and that discouragement, it feels like for a brief period of time can seem like an eternity to us. David here is chest deep in the mire of despair. He feels like he's sinking further and further, and he's reached the conclusion that God has forgotten about him. Maybe you know what that feels like. 
Maybe you believed that same lie. Second line conclusion is, not only has God forgotten me, God has intentionally abandoned me. He goes on, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, it's one thing to be forgotten. That's bad enough. We, we had a family in our church growing up who had a, a lot of kids, and no matter what the event was, they always left at least one of them behind when they went home. We'd have to track them down and get their kid back to them. Being forgotten feels bad enough, but it's a whole other thing to be purposefully abandoned, to be intentionally ignored, to be avoided, to be rejected. And that's the conclusion David has reached here in verse 1. Just as Christian was abandoned in that sinking swamp by Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress, just as he was intentionally left alone to sink and likely die, David cries out to God, how long will you hide your face from me? In other words, I know you're there. I know you can see me. I know you can hear me. Are you really going to just hide yourself from me and watch while I sink? How long are you going to let me keep sinking? He feels intentionally abandoned by God. Line conclusion number three. God's wisdom is no longer even available to me. God's, God's help is not there for me. In verse 2, he says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? In other words, David's saying, Things in my life have gone from bad to worse. My whole existence is sorrow. Somehow, though, I look around at the people who hate me, at the wicked, and they seem to be doing just fine. They seem to be prospering while my life is a mess. And by the way, my life's a mess because of what you called me to do. How long are you going to hide yourself from me? I have to take counsel in myself now. I've got no idea how to fix it. I am left all alone. There are no answers. And, and David said, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says this. Is, he's using a Hebrew idiom, which means to, to plan for yourself, to, to adjust for yourself. There's a sense in which David has come to the conclusion, my life isn't going the way I want it to. I, I, I'm sinking. And so if there's anything good at all that's going to come my way, if there's any way out of this situation, I'm going to have to make it happen all by myself. It's all on me. That's a very dangerous place to be as a Christian. There's nothing more dangerous in our discouragement, in our depression, than coming to the conclusion that we are really all alone. That, that whatever it is that you're facing, that you're all alone in it. That there's no help for you. That you have to figure it out all by yourself. That it's going to come down ultimately to your own power, your own goodness, your own wisdom, your own strength. The slew of despond like that wave pool so many years ago has a powerful undertow. And it pulls you deeper and deeper and deeper and makes you believe lie after lie after lie. All you can hear while, while that undertow has you and is pulling you under, while that weight is pushing you lower and lower as if you are in quicksand, all you can hear the whole time you're fighting for your life is, that's right, 
Even God doesn't care about you. You're alone. You're going to have to figure this out all by yourself because absolutely no one is coming to your rescue. God's wisdom, God's counsel, God's rescue are reserved for more worthy people than you. You do not deserve it. You are all alone. William Carey, the the father of modern missions in the 18th century, who, who the Lord used powerfully in India for decades, wrote these words in his journal during a particularly difficult bout with discouragement and despair. And we see this of some of the great heroes of the faith as we look back through church history. Who Some of the men used most mightily by God were some of the most broken men. Men who dealt with despair and anxiety and pain. William Carey is one of these men. He writes this, I'm defective in all my duties. In prayer I wander and am too formal. I soon tire. Devotion languishes, and I do not walk with God. Do you ever feel that way? When I come to prayer, it all feels manufactured. My mind wanders, or I'm trying so hard that I'm just being formal, and it feels cold, and, well, William Carey felt like you. In another journal entry, he writes, I have reason to lament over the barrenness of my soul. I am sometimes much discouraged, for I am so dead. How can I expect to be of any use among the lost? Another time he wrote, My soul is a jungle when it ought to be a garden. I can scarcely tell if I have the grace of God or not. I am perhaps the most inconsistent, cold creature that ever possessed the grace of Christ. If God uses me, none need despair. In other words, Carrie, one of, the, one of the great heroes of the faith said, if God can use somebody like me, who's the most pathetic excuse for a Christian and man that has ever lived, then no one else has cause to doubt that God could use them because I'm the worst. Those are the words of someone who is chest deep in the slough of despond. That, that's what those are. Someone who's sinking, or at least feels like they are, sinking deeper and deeper. And here in Psalm 13, David is still sinking, still sinking deeper. He has not hit the bottom yet. Comes to line conclusion number four, and that is God might just let me be destroyed. He just might let me drown. Verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He is tempted to believe that a solution to his trouble is never going to appear from God. He, he has cried out four times now, how long? How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let me just keep sinking? And he's feeling like the answer to that question is forever. So his enemies might as well plan a celebration because God has decided not to rescue him. He is practically already defeated. They might as well just start their celebration. He here is on the brink of total hopelessness, but but even though David is caught in the undertow of depression, even though he's been implying some things that are 
pretty harsh about the character and love and care of God. At the same time, we're seeing hints in him of his ultimate trust in God. He says here in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. This one to whom David is calling out, how long? This one to whom David is calling out, have you forgotten me? This one to whom David is calling out, are you intentionally hiding your face from me? This isn't just the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is his God. O Lord, my God. This is David's God. David is saying, even in the midst of all this, you are my God. He's also implying something about the absolute sovereignty of God. In his despair, in his repeated prayer, how long, O Lord, there is this recognition of God's sovereignty, of God's sovereign rule. Not just the depths of your trials, but God also determines the length of your trials. And David knows that. This trial will be exactly as bad and last for exactly as long as God has purposed it to last. There's comfort in that. Even in his depression, David knows that God is in control. That God knows how deep his pit is. That God knows exactly how long it's going to last. And friend, if you feel like you're sinking, if you feel all alone, You can cry out to God who does hear your prayer. You can cry out to God who is at work for good, even in your trials. That doesn't mean we feel it all the time. In fact, you probably won't feel it in the midst of your trial. We may not feel it, but we can know it. Because his word says it's true. That's why David prays here, light up my eyes. In other words, enlighten my eyes. Help me to see you rightly. I know I'm not seeing you rightly. And I know that I need to. David, as he he calls out to God, as he cries out to God from his sinking place, God, have you abandoned me? How long are you going to let this go? Have you forsaken me? David cries out to God knowing that he's not understanding things correctly. I need to see you rightly. Even in our struggling, friends, when we cry out to God, it is a declaration of faith in his glorious sovereignty. God has given us these prayers as our prayers. We can pray these words to God. Here, though, before we see David make the full turn. Before we see him begin to climb out of the miry pit of despair he has sunk into, I want to draw our attention briefly to one more hero of the faith who found himself sinking in the swamp of despair. He's one of the last people we would expect to find depressed in Scripture. It's Elijah. We heard about him some this morning in the adult Sunday school class. A tough Man, a strong man, a courageous prophet of God. We see with Elijah his signature moment in 1 Kings 18. He stands alone against 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah challenges them to battle on Mount Carmel. One man 
against 450 men on Mount Carmel in battle. And here's the weapons they each get. We each get an altar and we each get a bull. The rules of of war were this. Only your God can light this fire. Only your God can, can light the fire of this sacrifice. Whose God would send fire from heaven? And that will prove who the real God is. Elijah on the one side, 450 prophets of Baal on the other side. Whosoever God acts in this moment as we stand right here, that's whose God. The prophets of Baal get to fire the first shot in the battle from morning through afternoon. They call on their god Baal. They pray and they dance and they yell and they scream and they cut themselves. And nothing happens. No fire falls from heaven. It's just a dead bull on an altar of stone. Elijah mocks them. I love the, the language of... 1 Kings 18, while they limped around their altar, it's this picture of these pathetic, pathetic false prophets and their pathetic God. Elijah says, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And then Elijah calls the people to himself. He, he has his altar and his sacrifice doused with 12 large barrels of water just for good measure. And he prays a simple prayer and what happens? Well, we all know what happens. Fireball from heaven comes and explodes onto this altar, consuming not only the bull, not only the wool, but burning up all of the stones of the altar as well, even the dirt that surrounded it. As the smoke billows up from this crater that has been created by this fireball that has come from heaven, the people begin to cry out, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. What an incredible moment. He, he must have felt on top of the world that day. So what makes what happens next so shocking? Jezebel, the queen sent word to Elijah, and the word was basically this, I'm going to kill you immediately. The next verse says this, he was afraid and ran for his life. It says, then he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Chapter 19, verse 14, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek to take my life away. Doesn't that sound like David? The predicament David is in? God, it's because of what you called me to do. It's because of my faithfulness that I find myself in this situation. And now here I am all alone. In one day, Elijah went from a man of astounding, mind-blowing courage, standing against the king, standing against his wicked queen, standing face-to-face against 450 prophets of Baal, facing down these pagan prophets, facing down the entire nation, 
And then one day he goes from that man to a man who is running for his life and begging God to kill him. The ground on Mount Carmel is still smoldering. The ground on Mount Carmel is still wet with the blood of the prophets of Baal who Elijah has defeated, but Elijah has lost all hope in God. He was neck deep in the swamp of despair and felt like he was drowning. Those who struggle with depression know there's not a whole lot of difference there's not a whole lot of distance in space in between Mount Carmel and the slew of despond. Between our mountaintop moment and the pit. That, that trip is a short one. It can often be a very quick one. For Elijah, it happened in one night. In a matter of hours. Sometimes in a matter of minutes, we are able to make the trip from the mountaintop to the pit. We don't have time to get into it, but despite how Elijah felt, God had not actually abandoned him. God was at work. God was even at work for Elijah's good. God graciously intervened for Elijah. He reminded him he was not alone. He reminded him that he was with him, but not only is, is God with him, God said, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Most importantly, God reminded Elijah of his sovereign power, of his good purposes. He lifted Elijah up. He set him back on his feet. He led him out of the slew of despond. And now back in, in Psalm 13, David is beginning to recover his spiritual footing as well. If you remember, we said that in, in John Bunyan's allegory that there were steps through the slew of despond, but it's just that they're very difficult to see. Well, David begins to find and take those steps, and he reveals to us some of those stepping stones that brought him out of despair. And friends, they will help us as well. Stepping stone number one, remember God's steadfast love. Look what he says in verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. Here, here, here's this glorious word. He, he goes from saying, lest my enemies rejoice because I am shaken. And what's the first word in verse 5? It's one of the best words in all the Bible. But, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, praise God for all the buts in the Bible. This this amazing word. This word that turns the tables. This word that changes everything. I am sinking. I am in despair. I am drowning and I feel abandoned. But God, no matter what it looks like to me, no matter what I am feeling, in spite of the undertow of despair that wants to bury me, I remember your steadfast love. It's, it's as if he's in this moment clenching his teeth and saying, I must trust in God. There's something more than what I see. There's something more than what I feel. I, I'm, I'm drowning in this swamp, but there's something more real than this swamp. He's teaching us how to respond when we feel overwhelmed. When we have depression, when we have fear, when we have hopelessness. Because faith doesn't simply make our troubles disappear. Knowing the truth 
Trusting in the truth is not a magic button that makes everything better. Our faith doesn't mean the absence of struggle. No, not in this life. In this world, you will have trouble. It does inform what our response should be. That's why Jesus' sentence doesn't end with a period after the word trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Nothing has changed for David yet. As he makes this turn in verse 5, his circumstances have not changed one little bit. Saul is still hunting him. He is still running for his life. He is still hungry. He is still, humanly speaking, up against impossible odds. But David begins to remember. He says to God, I remember, Lord, your steadfast love. I've seen it work in the past. I have trusted it. It has been steady. It has been firm. It has been true. It has never failed me. It has never neglected me. It's not a matter of what I feel. It's a matter of what I know. God is faithful. His love is steadfast. Even when it feels absent to me, and even when he feels absent to me, He's never left me. He's right here. He's at work. It's the first step out of the mire. It's remember who God is. Stepping stone number two, rejoice in God's salvation. He says, my heart shall rejoice, verse five, in your salvation. Again, nothing has changed in David's circumstances but meditating on who God is, on his steadfast, unshakable, unfailing love for his own has brought David to a place of rejoicing. What a quick turn. I might feel like I'm barely keeping my head above the water, but God will not let me drown. David is reminding himself, salvation is God's to give, and God has given it to me. Well, what better thing is that? What more hope is there for us than that? Seeing God as he is, recounting his faithfulness to us, that our debt has been paid, that our condemnation has been removed, that we have been made into his sons and his daughters with a glorious inheritance, that we are hidden in Christ in such a way that no one can ever separate us from God's love for us in Him. It lifts our perspective. It produces worship. It produces rejoicing in us, even in the midst of of serious trial. It doesn't automatically fix everything. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. Remember what Bunyan said in this wonderful analogy? These steps don't take you around the slew of despond. There's no avoiding it. There's no going around it. These stepping stones take you through it with something solid beneath your feet. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Stepping stone number three is to respond with thankfulness. He says in verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Look at where David has come in a short time. It's not far from the mountaintop to the pit. 
It's not far from the pit to the mountaintop. That's the reality. He has gone from coming very close to accusing God outright of forsaking him to now singing to the Lord a song of praise and rejoicing in the bounty of God's blessing to him. Where's he doing this from? I don't know, whatever cave he's hiding in. Whatever place he's at, hiding out for his life. His circumstances have not changed. There's still a price on his head. But he's free. He's free. He's not drowning and he knows it. He's free from the slew of despond. His, his feet are on solid ground and he is singing for joy. Friends, this is what happens when we begin to recount God's faithfulness. If you are one like me who deals frequently with depression, depression that can even get pretty rough, thankfulness is a powerful antidote, a supernatural antidote. Christian, God has dealt bountifully with you. Recount the ways. Remind yourself of the ways. He has dealt bountifully with you. The Lord, I don't need to know your circumstances to know that's true. You might have lived in financial poverty your whole life and things don't look any better. And you, like our brothers and sisters throughout the entire history of the church, may live a life of suffering. That might be true. And you know what else is true? And even more true? God has dealt bountifully with you. The Lord Jesus Christ bled and died and was raised for you. He has given you unshakable promises. We can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, God has dealt bountifully with us, Christians. We get all of Christ. We get all of his benefits. Recount them when you're struggling. Recount them when you're fearful. Recount them when you're depressed. When you look at the world around you and you feel like you're drowning, and you go, there's not one thing I can see with my eyes that looks good. Begin to thank God. Begin to recount and remember how God has dealt bountifully with you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that will do for you is to begin to open your eyes to look at the world around you and begin to find limitless things to be thankful for. The fact that there's padding underneath you as you sit on these benches. It's one of the most powerful antidotes to depression is to begin to thank God for the countless ways he has dealt bountifully with you. And if you can't think of any, begin to recount the bounty, the riches of his kindness to you in Christ. And I promise you, he will open your eyes to a wealth of things around you in this physical world as well. By God's grace, we have been united to Jesus through faith. And in him, we have received all of himself. 
We have received all of his benefits. That's what our union with Christ means. Jesus has given us himself. And with himself united us to him by his own Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We have received forgiveness. We have received righteousness. We have received eternal life. We have hope. And we have wisdom. And we have endurance. And we have freedom. And we have nearness with him. And we have been given one another in the church. We have Jesus and we have all of his benefits. That's the depth of God's steadfast love for us. That's how God has dealt with us. Bountifully. Brothers and sisters, fellow sufferers, this is the message of Psalm 13. No matter what the pit that we find ourselves in, when we are walking through the slough of despond, we must fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And as we do that, God by his Spirit, oh, how could we ever be alone? The third person of the triune Godhead indwells us. That Spirit who will lift our eyes to behold Christ, who will cause us to behold him, will then from the very bottom of our hearts produce in us real joy, real peace, real hope, real thankfulness, real praise, real rejoicing. We can praise God with thankful hearts because no matter what, when it is all said and done, God has dealt bountifully with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the best news we could ever receive. And that's where hope is found. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, you have dealt bountifully with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, even, even as we heard in the, in the words in our, in our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 119, that, Lord, it, it, if we are afflicted, it's for our good. If we're afflicted, it's that we might know you more. It's that we might draw nearer to you. And so, Lord, I, I do pray for my brothers and my sisters who, who suffer, who suffer in a way similar to the way that I do, with anxiety, with depression, with a myriad of things that would, would lie to us, that would cause us to, to take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to, to believe things about you that simply aren't true, that you've abandoned us, that you don't care, to believe that, that you will uh, leave us to sink and to drown. Lord, would you by that spirit who indwells all of your people lift our eyes to behold Christ, to, to remember your steadfast love. Lord, to walk in, in faithfulness and the joy that comes with being your son, your daughter, your beloved in Christ. Lord, we rejoice in your gospel and we confess, Lord, that when we think our faith will fail, we know that Christ will hold us fast. We rejoice in you and in your faithful promises to us. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our faithfulness as well for your namesake. 
for your glorious gospel, for your kingdom. And yes, Lord, for our and all of your people's eternal joy, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.